Like you were like half a second off of me, half a second I, behind me. You are like crazy off for me. Oh my god, that is not good. I don't know. I don't know what. I, I vote you're lagging. You have shittier internet than me. Hello and welcome to Fans Labyrinth. The show. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> you did it immediately after I yelled. I you have shitty I internet. I couldn't. I could not laugh. <laughs> And you have such a serious face. I'm going to turn my video off so I don't make you laugh. No, no, no. I'll fine, turn it back fine. on after. <clears throat> Hello and welcome to Fans Labyrinth, the show where we talk genre films, hidden gems, and indie movies. My name's Joseph, and here's my co-host. Lydia. Hello. 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 I love how you do the intro all like NPR style and it's like super serious and I'm just like, hey, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I really struggled. To, like when I know that I'm supposed to be saying something, I really struggle not to say it more. Professor. <laughs> yes. Of course, when I'm with people, they tend to like me best when I'm more informal. But maybe it's probably because it's yeah, like because that's what humans contrary prefer. to my personality. <laughs> no, but I think people find it funny when I do it. So oh, okay. I think they're laughing the, at you. They yeah, they <laughs> like reacting out of character. You just have it like this like hot. It is hot. You have this beautiful ASMR voice, and I've got like vocal fry and like a shrill witch laugh. I feel exactly the opposite. I cannot stand listening to my own voice oh in these God, things. No, and I'm like, Lydia has this perfect voice for, for podcasts what and it's like going so well. About? And then you have to listen to me. That's and I'm just like crying. Voice. Like vocal fry. And like, if you really listen, a very subtle lisp. It's like, ugh. <laughs> Terrible. Um, it is hot as hell though. If you're... In Canada, I don't know what the temperature's like in any of the United States. <laughs> or elsewhere in the world. Uh, but I know, no, that's not true. That's not true. I know what the temperature is in the UK and in Ireland because I have family in oh Ireland and God. co-workers in the UK. <laughs> so I know it's also hot as fuck there. Yeah, it's also, you know, going to be uploaded on some random day in the future. So, you know, it's not very helpful to anyone. But for us... It is very hot. Yeah, on this and Wednesday evening, it's like 28 degrees, and I don't have air conditioning, and I can't have my goddamn fan on because we're recording. That's true. Um, I'm just sitting in stagnant heat. Um, so this week, it sounds like we have both been more watchy-watchy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, because I didn't really do anything on the weekend. Um, so why did you watch? Okay, I'll start. Fine. So, uh, th- I feel like this one we're both going to want to talk about. So, I saw The Great. I watched The Great. Yeah, I finished it too. 
Oh, you did finish it. Okay, good. Yeah, so I, I, we both watched the entirety of it. We watched the first episode together, um, but because we watched so many movies together to record this, we never have time to watch shows together because we don't live in the same place. We live like six hours away from each other. So yeah, I binged it on my own. You binged it on your own for the most part. Um, and I just like Elle Fanning is a treasure. Mm-hmm. And Nicholas Holt, I feel like in like in like 15, like he's an amazing actor. Don't Like I love him and pretty much everything I've seen him in. I feel like in like 15 or 20 years, he's either going to be like a really hot older dude or like really not so great looking anymore. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It is, it's almost, it's almost surprising, or it is surprising that he hasn't, like, he still looks, like, young. He still, he still hasn't quite uh, Aside from the, like, very subtly receding hairline. Yeah. He looks better when he has a fuller head of hair on top. Like, when it's really short, it's not as forgiving to his massive forehead. Um, (laughs) But, I mean, that's fine. I get it. I have a huge forehead, too. No judgment. Yeah, we said I you compared it to something else, I think, but I said that it really reminded me of um like Scream Queens and the politician, especially. Is Which kind of a vibe. I find so weird because for me, it felt so much more like the Sophia Coppola movie Marie Antoinette. Like it's the same. Well, I never kind saw of, it, so Oh, see, you need to watch it. It's not great, but the soundtrack is amazing. Kirsten Dunst also a treasure. Um and oh, who else was in it? Jason Schwartzman who is also the lead singer of a really good band called Coconut Records. And it's just, it's it's very like revisionist history, modern music in like a period piece, very flamboyant costuming, like inappropriately timed comedy, which is very funny. Um, and like very pop arty without being as aggressive as something like a ryan murphy politician which is like really in your face pop arty um but yeah beautiful costuming great acting and like it it's good but it's it feels very much the same just like a different cast of characters so the great is um catherine the great of russia marie antoinette obviously is about marie antoinette but it feels very very similar like it starts with her coming there to marry the um, king, emperor of Russia, emperor of Russia, and the great. But in Marie Antoinette, it's the king of France. I don't mm. know what they call him there. Um, but yeah, so it literally starts with her being like, you know, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, whatever it is, going there to marry this guy that she's never met before and has only seen a picture of, and she has really romantic ideas of what it's going to be about, and like that they're going to fall madly in love, and then he just ends up being like kind of worthless. And she sort of gets, like, in, in Marie Antoinette, obviously, she becomes a lot more frivolous. And she's, like, spending all of the king's, like, the kingdom's money. And she says, like, bullshit lines, like, let them eat cake. And she takes on a lover. So in The Great, like, it differentiates itself there with, like, the plot line. Because, obviously, Catherine the Great was very different from Marie Antoinette. But the flow and structure of the story is very similar and the stylization and appearance of the sets and the costuming is very, very similar. And then the revisionist fact in that it's comedy. So, yeah, you should watch Marie Antoinette. It's it's very similar. Obviously, there's a lot more similarities in the sense of that they're both histor- historical revisionist dramas. But the reason it reminds me of the Ryan Murphy ones is obviously purely from a, like a stylistic 
um, point of view that I'm not used to seeing period dramas where characters sort of break the fourth wall. They don't don't even really break the fourth wall, but they like, they do it in the Ryan Murphy way of doing so, which is, you know, they don't technically break, but they like break any sort of semblance that these could be real people doing these things. And they're like, you know, they're theatrical. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's melodramatic and over the top for sure. Well, I mean, and then they say colloquial stuff. They're saying fuck all the time. Um, and yeah, but I mean, uh, I feel like just, they're just not speaking Russian. <laughs> I know what you mean. I know well, what you mean. But, but they're again, not speaking think... historical English either. Like, no, I know. They're what not I mean, doing what historical they? dramas do. Yeah. I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. It's just, A, I've never really seen Ryan Murphy. I mean, I guess Hollywood, but that was in the fit, like 60s. So I've never really seen Ryan Murphy do a historical, like a period piece. So I don't know how he would do it. So, like, that seems like a weird comparison. Like, if you're comparing language, it's like, yeah, they speak more modern English. Well, it's the same So, I guess that, that's similar, um, but... If we have Tarantino, right, his first movies don't have, aren't historical, but he has some later, like, a Western and one set in Nazi yeah. Germany that are historical. But you can clearly see it's still Tarantino. Like, there's no... Gap yeah, there's, between, a, there's a dialogue. There's a very specific dialogue style because Tarantino movies... His, yeah. his older movies specifically and I mean he does it still now but he is very dialogue driven his movies are very dialogue heavy and I mean I suppose in that in that way Ryan Murphy would be similar to the great in that it's very dialogue driven but I mean I just personally from from my side of things I don't really see the similarities because and I mean maybe I'm thinking too hard on the fact that it's like nothing I've seen by Ryan Murphy is really a historical drama um like it it doesn't i don't know it just doesn't mesh with with what i'm seeing in the great i i don't really see a comparison i feel like brian murphy is so so pop arty and so over the top that it just doesn't do you not find that with the great the great is like outrageous for being a historical piece it's outrageous for being a historical drama but if you put it in modern day it wouldn't be that outrageous sort of although they do like torture people and stuff at a at a drop of a hat and so there is a yeah, but I mean, you can which... say the same thing about Game of Thrones. Like, I, like that means mm-hmm. nothing that they torture people with the drop of the hat. You could say that about a lot of premium um, cable shows. You could say that about The Walking Dead. Like, that doesn't yeah, mean but the, anything. Yeah, this, I guess, yeah, in this satirical way of, like, doing it. I don't know. The vibe to me is extremely, yeah, I think. But it's, it's not meant to be a huge point. No, I know. I'm just saying. You could say that about Barry, then, which is a HBO show where they torture people and it's satirical. Barry, I think, does have a similar vibe. I disagree wholeheartedly. I would say Barry has more in common with a Tarantino than a Ryan Murphy, to be honest. Look at early Tarantino's work and it feels very similar. I mean, I think that is also true. We're just, I just think we're not going to agree on this. We're not going to agree on this. I don't think there's anything wrong with your saying with what you're saying. I just don't see the similarities that you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I haven't seen historical drama done this way before. And so for me, it's extremely refreshing. That's um, fair. That's fair. So uh, that that's what thing. But I but even though I'm saying it's refreshing, I want to be clear that um, it feels a kind of refreshing that in a way is old hat because we already have many of these satirical, over the top things. That's a very popular style right now. Ryan yeah, being the one I thought was the most. Plus, um, 
obvious. Combining that with the popularity of revisionist history right now with your Tarantinos. And I mean, Hollywood is technically a revisionist history. It's just much closer to the time period we're in now. Um, and then yeah, obviously Sabrina has that. a similar vibe as well, just less satirical. Um, I mean, it is satirical. But I would say Sabrina. I mean, I see the similarities between Sabrina and Ryan Murphy, but I don't see the similarities between Sabrina and the Great. <laughs> I really do not see what you're seeing. I just don't. I'm sorry. I just don't. I, just, I, 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 don't. I, I I'm honestly, it's it's so apparent to me that I'm not even sure where the like line would begin. I just don't, it's just I like no this idea, idea of like the scene where you have a camera in like a full fake, like full uh, close up of the main female lead's face who is in a patriarchal ish world or whatever. And she just being completely defined in a way that like is opposed to the thing in this like feministy kind of lens um, with humor and with extravagance is just like so in that sphere for me. Um, and I think maybe it's because I've seen that done in other things that I'm not immediately looking at Ryan Murphy when I when I see that kind of thing you know that that pseudo fourth wall breaking where they look directly at the camera or look past the camera but it's just a close-up of their face or whatever like I've seen that before Ryan Murphy and I've seen that since Ryan Murphy so I don't immediately equate that with him as like he's on the forefront of that you know what I mean because again, Coppola, yep. like Sofia Coppola, did that, and Marie Antoinette as well. I I would even say Tarantino has done that before in his movies. Um, I, I only because I just feel like this is such a weird connection that I did not know was going to happen. But I I ended up watching The Virgin Suicides. Oh my god, two thousand. Oh, The Virgin Suicides. With oh god, okay, another fun conversation coming up with Cody, and we both hated it. You're just wrong. Um, I love that movie. Although again. <laughs> Again, I feel like, like Donnie Darko, The Virgin Suicides is a movie that, like, at least if you're It did a remind woman, me of Donnie Darko. At least yeah. if you're a woman, like, it is something that, like, if you see it in your teen years, it's probably going to be significantly more impactful than if you see it in and your And Cody adulthood. loved it when he was a teen. Yeah. And now, and now he's, that's why he wanted to rewatch with me, because I was like, I suggested it. It's like a movie that's been on my dock for a long time, and we just saw it on a streaming service. Like, that's something we can watch tonight. We started up and we're both like groaning every step of the way. I love it so because, much. Okay, here's the basic. Here's the basic ground. Okay, here's the okay. basic ground. Okay. Is that it's it's, it's about five women who yep. commit suicide. I mean, that's the that's the premise. Um, no. And it's a it's a puzzle box reconstruction where you're going flashback and you're going to find out why why this happened, right? So it's five, and then their mom is another important character. Mm-hmm. It almost doesn't pass the Bechdel test. Even with that premise, they almost never talk to each other about something other than a guy. It's entirely yeah, about I mean, I... all the guys that fall in love with them or that are voyeurs on the outside of their lives. I do. I do totally. I, I do totally understand where you're coming from. And like, I don't disagree that that lens is problematic. But I just feel like looking at it as like someone who was a teenage girl. Like, that is so true to form where, like, the only thing, like, once you really recognize that boys are a thing that you're interested in, the only thing you really talk about with girls is, like, boys and what you watch on TV and, like, what parties you're going to go to and, like, dumb, frivolous shit like that. And that's all they talk about in the movie, but it's through this, like, lens of them being, like, from this incredibly reserved, 
pseudo-religious family where yes. like they don't have any understanding of their own sexuality what it means to be a woman like they think it's wrong to be interested in boys they think it's wrong to be feminine like all of these really interesting and complexity like complex feelings that they can't fully understand yet because they're so young are wrapped up into going through puberty and trying to grow up and be adults and then their own like issues with depression and stress and not meeting expectations so like i think while maybe the lens of like having it be through the view of like these pubescent teenage girls not understanding their sexuality and only talking about boys could be seen as problematic it would be unrealistic to have like a Rory Gilmore kind of character from Gilmore Girls who's like super well read and really self-confident in that role because that wouldn't be the case when you're coming from an abusive, extremely religious family. For sure. And so taking that, taking all that for, like as a thing, it is, you know, so it's, it's a book written by Jeffrey Eugenides that the movie is based off of. And you can really see, so um, Sofia Coppola was the writer and director, and it was yeah. one of the first screenplays she wrote. I read an article about this. And um, she said that, you know, she really tried to take exactly the lines from, so the dialogue is almost word for word from the books and the narration, there's lots and lots of narration and these are clearly exact lines from the books. So you're getting a really clear image that she could only really edit like where she wants to put it. The actual characters though, so from that perspective, being from Jeffrey Eugenides is, or yeah, and the actual plot structure is a little, I think it's just... It's in a bad place in time right now, based on yeah. what's happened yes. recently. Because when you look back at it, it's about two groups of guys. The first of which are geeky voyeurs who are obsessed with collecting all the little memorabilia of these girls that are that like come out of their house and obsessing over it and telescoping into their house. Right, all the most the most terrible of like eighties and nineties romance movie tropes. Then in Act Two, you have. Uh, the, the hottest guy in school become... Played by Josh Hartnett? Am I right? Yes. I haven't yes. seen this movie in like and, eight years. <laughs> yeah. And he brings um, a bunch of other guy characters too. And then they have their own views of these girls. Mm -hmm. um, and the girls come out in very like um, knit by their mom or sewn by their mom. Um, virginal uh, flowery very, dresses. like almost right? Mennonite-y. Yes. And... And then they, so they have their fun night together sort of thing and how that affects. Yeah, it's like homecoming I, or prom or something, isn't it? Yeah, it was homecoming. Uh, and it's like, I don't think any of it was done wrong, but because it's from the perspective of these guys only, because it's a puzzle box yeah. story of from their perspective, what, what, what were these girls all about? Uh, it just feels so awkward in, from today's context in yeah. which the voices of women are so important. To have this mo this movie that are starring five women, four of which are completely irrelevant, and then the mom. Yeah, um, I mean, I I definitely yeah. I definitely understand where you're coming from, and that's part of the reason I say like, it's something that like watching it as a teen girl, I loved it so so yeah. much. But I like if I had seen it for the first time now, I would be I would probably be, I would probably recognize these issues more clearly. Um, but I mean, I've got nostalgia goggles for it like i just i just love that movie it makes us it makes us think though 
with our rewatch of Donnie Darko, since I do think it's, it reminds me in many ways of this movie, yeah. just like the era. Um, I wonder, oh, because also this movie was made in 2000s, but is set in 75. So it's very close to Donnie Darko in time frame. Um, well, I mean, it's like 10, I, 10 year different, 12 year difference. Oh, it was 85? I thought it was 80. It's yeah. 88. Eight, actually, yeah. yeah. It's 88. Okay, never mind. Yeah. It's like 12, um, 15 year difference, but, you know. I thought it was five, okay. Close, close, close enough. But no, I know what you mean, because this, the cinematography has a very similar feel. It's got that kind of hazy yes. filter over the camera. Um, the only difference is, like, cinematography-wise, Donnie Darko uses a lot of cool lighting, so there's a lot of blues and blue tones in every scene, whereas yeah. The Virgin Suicides uses a lot of, like, sepia tones and warm lighting. So there's sort of this, like, romantic, hazy kind of look over every scene. Um, whereas Donnie Darko is much colder looking, but you still have that sort of like soap opera filter, which was very popular in the eighties, mostly because their cameras were shitty. Well, I mean, they I, just uh, were. Yeah, the version of Suicide feels like it. It, if it, it, it's weird because it feels like if any uh, of my friends, if anyone could love it, I'd be the one because I love these like depressing stories, and I don't necessarily feel as strongly about leftist issues on these things like i can appreciate a movie going in different directions on this stuff. but this one it just felt so egregious to our time politically that it just felt like but such I mean, a missed opportunity kind of, you do have to kind of put it in the time period it came i feel like that movie came out in like what 2004 yeah it's just the closeness you know if it was an all guys movie you'd be like all guys movies this is fine right it's the fact that you're like okay this was you know sofia coppola five women are the main characters let's go and then again, you're like, oh. Again, this was this a, is what it's gonna be. in a time period yeah. where it was still, and I mean, it still is now, but it was incredibly difficult for a woman to get a movie made, especially a movie for made sure. about women. So, like, basically the only reason Sofia Coppola could do it was because she was able to trade on the Coppola name. Like, her dad is Francis, or her grandfather, her dad or her grandfather is Francis Ford Coppola. So it's like she was able to trade on that clout to be able to like do this and i'm not saying she's not talented in her own regard she is i like sofia coppola movies quite a bit but like if she was an unknown director she wouldn't have been able to get a movie made about five women five teen girls especially not one that depressing so it's like yeah it's a book written by a dude i'm assuming and like mm -hmm. it's not the best lens, but it is also one of the earlier examples of a female-driven story coming from a female writer-director. And that's, to me, very impressive. So you have to kind of take it with the lens of that time period. Like, I'm not saying I'm mm -hmm. going to go back and watch Breakfast at Tiffany's and be totally cool with Mickey Rooney and, like, Yellowface, because that was a bad decision yeah. even in the fucking 60s. But, like... There are certain things where you kind of have to go like, this still needs to be appreciated because it is a huge feat that this movie got made when it got made. And that's only like, like you know, with 15, 20 years ago. Like, that's nuts that that's such a big step forward in filmmaking. Mm -hmm. But, you know, with Breakfast at Tiffany's, I rewatched that like five years ago or so. And I do think there's something very special about that movie still from like a feminist perspective. And like, yeah. It's really fun, even though it also has these horribly problematic aspects. Um, I think what's so frustrating about The Virgin Suicides is that it's almost the opposite where, where people are going back to movies that people didn't necessarily think had 
interesting political stuff going on and they're reappropriating they're like oh i love this character or this storyline we can bring out and be like things this is almost the opposite problem where you're like this one feels like it should safely fit into yeah um, i know what you a good mean. politics and it's the and, it, and you're like oh it's actually not that great in its politics you, you it's the disappointment it's the movement yeah. of disappointment which is so frustrating about it yeah i know what you mean and again i think i think i'm able to be like or maybe i'm just like overly defending it because i loved it so much in my youth but i think it is a little different because i saw it when i was young and people weren't considering these issues or talking about these issues then um and so much of the movie is about like struggle with sexuality not understanding femininity and like trying to grow up and it's all from like it's all about trying to grow up as a girl, even though the lens that's put on it is from a guy's perspective, it's not great. There weren't too many movies that were about the struggles of like depression and like abuse and um, sexuality from a girl's perspective in her teen years. So like it's still, I think it's still valuable in that regard. Like what did you have back then? Like that 13 and Girl Interrupted. Ginger Snaps. Okay, yeah, Ginger Snaps was rad. Fucking love that movie. Ginger Snaps 2? That was Canadian, Not right? so rad. Yeah, that was Canadian. It was filmed in Scarborough. And the Oof. star is... No one knows what that is. Catherine Isabel, who I've seen in many movies, and she is fantastic. Yeah, that movie kicked ass. It also has Chris Lemke in it, who I absolutely adore as well. I have a big soft spot for Canadian actors. Canadian talent always. <laughs> I yeah, also watched Shit's Creek. Yeah, I also watched that movie for the first time on a Friday Night Frightmare on Space Network. Oh, <laughs> this is getting very Canadian. Might as well rename the podcast this one. I know that movie's so good, though. Oh my god, I can quote that movie. It's like the lines are in my brain. Anyway, moving on. Okay, well, I'm counting Virgin Suicides as your go. <laughs> it was, yeah. Okay. I watched um, Little Fires Everywhere, which is the new Amazon Prime original. Right. So I haven't started that one yet. Okay. So I'm curious. I won't won't go too into it because you haven't seen it yet. Yes, please. And you want to watch it. Um, But it's really good. I mean, Reese Witherspoon is just like so fantastic recently. And always, but recently very much. Oh, yeah. Like she took a little break there. And then she came back on television and she is the best, like she's the best thing on TV. Everything. Like Big Little Lies was, she was incredible. She's the best character in Big Big Little Lies. She has that morning, morning talk show or morning radio show or whatever it is on Apple TV plus with um, Jennifer Aniston. And now she has this. She's incredible in it. Carrie Washington is incredible in it. Um, she was the lead actress on the TV show Scandal. If you ever watched okay. Scandal. Wow. Um, I haven't, but I yeah, Cody loves it. I also love Scandal. Mm-hmm. It's fun. It's it's not like incredible, but it's kind of like a mixture of like how to get away with murder meets mm-hmm. like the West Wing. Yep. That's yeah. what it felt like. I watched like two episodes and yeah. Yeah. That seems pretty apt. It's it's really fun. And she's great in that too. But she is like she's great in scandal um but in little fires everywhere she is just like next level like she's just incredible 
Um, and like what, all so of what's the... the what's the premise? Oh yeah, I guess I should probably give you a synopsis. Um, so it's it's about these two moms, um, Reese Witherspoon and um, Carrie Washington, and it's set in the eighties, I believe. Um, or no, it's set in the nineties. It's set in the mid to late nineties, and one mom is from a like is a single mother. She has one daughter. Um, she's of like a lower socioeconomic status, and the other mom is very wealthy, very privileged. Um, so Reese Witherspoon is the privileged mother. She has four children. She is married to Joshua Jackson, who played Pacey in Dawson's Creek. Um, who still looks adorable. Wow, okay. Just so you know. <laughs> He's also a great actor. He was in Fringe for like eight seasons. Um, That's true. I saw him in the first couple seasons of that show. Yeah. See? Never never got into that show, though. No, me neither. But at least I'm pop culturally sound, and I can name all these people for you. Um, yeah, so she's married to Joshua Jackson, Pacey. Um and they have four kids and they have a very like structured lifestyle. She works part-time for the local newspaper as a reporter. He's a lawyer. They live in a really high-end suburban neighborhood and the suburban neighborhood touts itself as being um, like a utopia for liberals basically. Like it's the first okay, neighborhood yeah. that ever um, integrated way back when okay wow okay yeah uh and it's like it's said in the mid 90s so this is like a big deal this is like a selling point for this neighborhood they put it on all the brochures for this neighborhood like we're the integrated neighborhood it's like a huge thing um and she owns a property within that neighborhood that was designed to look like a home but it's um like two or three different rental units um and she rents one of the units to carrie washington and her daughter who had previously been living in their car um okay and it is a like two two bed two bedroom plus den or something it's actually a really nice apartment um and she knocks a little off the price because she can tell they can't afford it and just says like just mow the lawn and i'll knock a little off the price um so it's it's it goes into like the complexities of their relationships and like Reese Witherspoon coming from this place of privilege and like the interactions between black and white people in this neighborhood that's supposed to be like highly evolved and super integrated and super liberal. But there's like all of these racial trappings within it. For sure. And then the kids I like this. getting along really, really well, but then that causes different complexities as they're like starting to grow up and having all of these like real issues because like I don't want to give too much away, but it's like it's very complicated, it's very character driven. Um, and it's just like all of the characters are so complex and so interesting. Like Reese Witherspoon's kids, there's four of them um a boy a girl a boy and another girl um and they all have different issues like the eldest boy is just like the super popular jock who's kind of a dick and just sort of like sleeps around and doesn't care about girls um or feelings and then the second oldest daughter is like a hardcore overachiever or the oldest daughter is a hardcore overachiever and like trying to get into yale and she is dating 
um, an African-American boy from her high school who's trying to go to Princeton and like all of the trappings of like an interracial relationship and not understanding that like just because she's dating an African-American boy doesn't mean that she's not capable of racial insensitivities and her mm-hmm. over competitiveness leading her into those kinds of trappings. Um, and then you've got the awkward boy who's like super uncomfortable around girls and then gets into like weird nice guy territory at certain points. And then the youngest girl who's struggling with um, her identity and her sexuality. Um, and then you have Carrie Washington's daughter who never knew her father, is from a lower socioeconomic status and is African-American coming to this super fancy public school that's like basically a private school at public school prices. That's what it's touted as with like the majority of the students being white. So like she's immediately put into like not remedial classes, but lower classes despite her like grade point average and her transcripts from her previous schools. And like, it's just, wow. yeah, it's, it's really intense. It's really intense. It's really heavily character driven. It's all about these interactions between these characters um, dealing with like all of these different like steps of privilege. Um, and it sort of flips the script yeah. on it too and is like showing like different types of privilege beyond just like racial privilege and gender privilege. So it's, it's very interesting. I the one thing I'm thinking about with this with this show is I am really curious of what the like who the reception is going to be because it does feel like that kind of show that like white liberals will really love thinking that it's like really subtly doing all the stuff that they are supposed to be doing and, and virtue signaling. Um, I know that term's terrible, but like, I mean, I don't disagree with you. I'm a white liberal and I loved it, so I do think you're you're onto something with that. But I also think like. I think it's and of course, tough. and it, I mean, and it's a very interesting story to me too. So I'm not denying that I don't have that same thing. But I'm curious if 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 that is something that's of interest to 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 other people across the spectrum. I know it was a book, I think originally. So I just want to see, yeah, like how oh, the book got really good reviews. Yeah, I definitely heard about the book, but... and the author is. Um, that's an American author, but she is a woman of color. I mean, she's not an African American mm. woman, but she is a woman of color. So I think that might help a little bit, at least as far as like that virtue signaling. Like, I feel like if it was from a white, like a white male author, it would be a little like you'd be in virgin suicide sure. territory, where it's like, okay, this is clearly like made for white liberal consumption. Um, but because it's a female woman of color writing about female women of color and like white privilege and all of those sorts of trappings that we might not necessarily have the right or might not necessarily have the best ability to convey as like white people it makes the it it lends a little bit more to like the story being authentic and and able to convey things that we might not be able to you know what i mean but either way it was very interesting and i really really enjoyed it and i binged the hell out of it incredibly quickly Oh, I. That makes sense. I for some reason I thought it might be a weekly show, but I guess it all just. No, it all just dropped. I'm done. It. I finished it already. I'm embarrassed. Mm. Not that embarrassed, <laughs> but a little embarrassed. Um, you're not gonna like this, but um, 
Uh, my next one's an anime. Oh, I don't care. I just won't have like a ton to say about it. Yeah. Um. So this is. I think we've talked about not this anime, but but this idea before. Um. That I've talked about. But recently, I got into this whole thing about Grimdark. Yes, people. we talked about this. What what cryptos? Yeah. So, um, in the last like four or five years, um, there's been a few um, Korean entries into the anime world, or in particular the manga world. Right. And so it's called different things. Instead of manga, it's called manhwa. Um, Which again, um, we haven't talked about this on the podcast before, but you did talk about this with me before. And manhwa yeah. is a great word, and I just want to reiterate that. <laughs> On the recording yeah so um i read a couple of those man was and the ones that i found and i don't know of that many others to be honest or at least not ones that people are really discussing except for the one that the anime that that i watched is about um but these two that are not the anime i watched these two that i right. read were very very dark like insanely dark um right. so i just wanted to like give you um and it, you'll love this one. That's like the big one. It's one called Killing Stalking. Right. And Already basically, into the name. basically the premise is uh, a gay guy is obsessed with this other guy at school. Okay. And uh, he decides to, the opening scene basically is him going to this guy's house and like stalking him. Creepy. And uh, yeah. So he goes in and the guy's like, are you stalking me? Blah, blah, blah. And he's like, over. Yeah. Basically you caught me. You caught me. And I I don't want to say, I don't even know how to like get into it basically, but like skip a few chapters. And essentially where we're at is um, the guy who was being stalked is, uh, ha- is basically has captured him into his house, the stalker into his house, like locked the doors and everything like that. And basically um, hits him with a baseball bat so he can't move. And the rest of the manga is their horribly dysfunctional relationship in this, like, super abusive kidnapping situation. Nice. And the stalking guy stays in love with him the whole time. Um, while the abuser, like, is just like, what the F is wrong with you? Sort of thing. Okay. And it's, like, the darkest, most psychologically twisted thing that I've read in a long time. But it's so addictive because it's so it's they're just so just like gross perspectives on both sides and so so dark right and this is this is the critique of grimdark everyone's always saying it's like should we be writing books about rapists and pedophiles and the horribleness of the world or blah 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 um anyways that all that almost has nothing to do with the anime ended up watching but it is uh, on this uh (laughs) Lydia's just, giving the like what just, the hell are you, you just talking really about? You really wanted man? to talk about the fucking manga you read, but like somehow interweave it with something you watched? That's some well, bullshit. Because it's something I'm I watched. doing that next. So then. it's it's my expert ex, it was my expectation, basically. I was like, okay, like I'm gonna start this and that's what it's gonna be like. Right. Because this is my context. So we started and essentially like so it, it was getting all this hype, the show called Tower of God. Getting Good all this name. hype. People were very excited about it. And essentially what it is, is just like a super fun, you know, fighting series. Essentially the premise is oh. young, naive guy. Do you know the, do you know the born sexy yesterday trope? You heard this? <laughs> no. Okay. Do you know, 
the fifth element yes. in the movie. Yeah. So her her character trope, Lulu? which is the idea is that um you are um you're born, you're a super naive, like blank slate character, but you're super sexy and super competent at something, like fighting okay. or whatever it is. Or you're like, you know, and yesterday meaning like you don't know what's going on in the world. Right. Um and uh, so, so this it's it's basically a born sexy yesterday trope, but with the guy character, which is actually kind of rare in these hero stories. So the hero is like super naive and doesn't know the world. But what the world turns out to be is essentially everyone is trying to climb this tower, um, at the top of which you get you get um, like a wish, you get like all like a crazy amount of power, okay. but everyone kills each other to do so, basically okay. to climb the levels of this tower. Um, and then kills monsters. So it is. It is still grim, darky in that it is a Hunger Games like fighting competition, which is sort of dark, I guess. Um, I mean, it is Hunger Games is dark, but I mean, you could have at least gone like battle royale if you want real dark. It's the same story, yeah. but much darker. So yeah, but it's just like it's just high octane action of that sort all the way. And I was just like, this is what everyone's hyped about. Like, haven't we already? been here done that so i but it was crazy addictive so i do understand why people are into it like once you're the character designs and the feeling of it it's like you're in you're in right, right away and it's just like fun to watch and the plot like moves along really quickly so so i do understand like people are just in it but i was i was expecting something more interesting i wish i had something more interesting to say about that but yeah it just turned out to be like a fun time all right well that's good um, how many are we doing? Because I've got a lot on this list, and I don't know how many we want to do. We'll, we'll edit. Who knows? All right, fine. Fair enough. I was going to say we can save some for next time, but then I'm probably going to have a whole bunch of other content I want to talk about. I have so. one short one left, and that's it. Oh, okay. So I have a bunch, so I'll save some. So Spanish language show, I watched Control-Z, or Control-Z if you're Canadian. Right. Um, yeah, that, I just saw that one. Come yeah, I'm honestly, like not 100% on the country of origin, um, but it's Spanish language. And it's, you know what it reminded me of was like, like Pretty Little Liars, but like darker. Okay. Um, so basically what happens is um, they go to this like, these kids go to a high school and it's sort of like a Weller off high school. So it's got free Wi-Fi through the school. Um, maybe that's a thing now. I don't know. It wasn't when I was in high school, so maybe it's a thing now. Um, yeah, everybody's everybody connects to this Wi-Fi, but it's not secure. And a hacker essentially hacks everybody's private devices that has ever connected to the school's Wi-Fi system. And because everybody's connecting all their phones to it, there's a whole lot of private information that they got access to. So this hacker starts basically blackmailing students. Um, so it'll be like, uh, tell me or give me permission to post about your best friend's darkest secret that you know, or I'll reveal your darkest secret. Um, so Okay, yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I like the premise. Yeah, so the first one that gets revealed is, is very upsetting. Okay, it's important to me to know, though. So is that character, is the hacker, like, 
an integral mystery part? Like, is it like yes. an A type? Yes. Yeah. Okay, good, good, yeah. good. It's a, you don't know who it is. So you're is. always trying to like figure it out. Pretty much. They reveal it at the end of the season. So I don't know if they're ever going to nice. do a season two, but you do get that revelation at the very end. So it's not a total That's cliffhanger, cool. which is nice. It kind of bookends the, the season. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a mystery throughout the whole thing. So you have this one character um, who's a young woman at the high school. Uh, who goes to the high school and she's sort of like the outsider um so she's not like super close with anybody she used to get bullied a lot because she had a personal tragedy that happened i don't want to give it away but she pays really close attention to people and she observes people because she doesn't really belong to any of the cliques so she decides to take it upon herself to figure out who this hacker is because she hates mysteries um and then a new student comes into the school right before the first hack is revealed. And he, because he's new, is sort of an outsider, but he comes from, like, his dad is super famous. So everybody wants to be friends with him. But he gets paired up with this, like, sort of outsider girl for, um, like, their science lab. And they start talking, and he gets invested in this and wants to figure out the mystery, too. So they start, like, untangling things together. Isn't even, I just thought of it, isn't actually, it's almost the exact premise, except a little more sci-fi, of Gossip Girl. It's similar to Gossip Girl. Sim- I mean, same with Pretty Little Liars, right? It's similar to to both. Yeah. Right, because, yeah. like, Pretty Little Liars is basically just darker Gossip Girl, and Control Z is basically yeah. just darker Pretty Little Liars. <laughs> like, it's, yeah. it's, this, it's basically the same premise. But you have a, like... That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. I will say, like... If anybody wants to watch it, I'm going to go, like, hard trigger warning to, like, Mm. transgender abuse issues and outings. Oh. Oh. Um, So, like, I'm going to go hard trigger warning there. It's nothing too graphic. It's just, like, I don't want to give anything too away, but I feel like because it's it's a content warning, um, I should give you a warning. In the first episode, there is an outing of a trans woman's status and it's honestly very upsetting um from somebody who is not trans and does not have that experience i can only imagine how hard to watch that would be if you can relate Mm. to that experience in any way and again later in the season there is another outing of another character but not for trans status to watch um so i would just be cautious that it is upsetting from that regard and there is some violence later in the season as well that you might want to be cautious of but it is a it is a really well done show overall and i think it gets into some like interesting issues of like secrets and privacy and challenges for like youth today that maybe didn't exist when we were in high school so i think it's worth watching you know it's almost surprising that i mean i guess it's because streaming services are there's so many of them they're so split but like if we're counting like foreign language shows and stuff too like that they don't get more shows like more often Mm. just because it's like you think of like even a even your average television channel probably each season has like seven to ten shows that they're putting out yeah. seven to ten new shows 
it's like and like let's so let's say it's conservative half that so three shows there's still like 20 television or like 30 or 40 television networks just in like yeah, and I would Canada say, has access to alone. I would say, honestly, I think you're really low-balling that number in new shows. It just, like, a lot of shows premiere, they just don't necessarily last the full length of what we would consider a season. Yeah. Right? Whereas on streaming feel like... services, they only premiere shows that are going to be a full season. Right? So you're not going to have a pilot episode. You're just going to have an entire season on streaming services. Especially with services like Netflix you're only seeing content like you're only being recommended content that fits within the confines of what you traditionally watch so there might be a new show whether foreign language or not that you're not seeing on your netflix queue because it's not within the like genre parameters of what you would traditionally watch that netflix has deemed so it won't promote it to you right like as soon as as soon as control z ended up on netflix it was immediately promoted to me because it matches the type of content I watch. Um, whereas it may not have shown up for you, but if a new anime show premieres on Netflix, you will see it long before I ever do. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of content that we're just not seeing because we don't traditionally watch it. Yeah. I also get recommended a lot of Indian shows. They make a lot of horror oh, shows. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. They make a lot of horror shows, like uh, supernatural horror shows and stuff. So I get recommended a lot of Indian content. I watched a couple of them. They're not bad. To wrap up my list on, I think a pretty good note, actually. This one is coming out weekly on Netflix, but they're doing a TV adaptation of Snowpiercer. Oh, damn it. I forgot to write that down. I watched that too. The two episodes. Which is, yeah, which is the the two episodes are out so far and it's based off the movie. And in a way, I'm kind of surprised at how close it's hewing to the movie. I kind of expected like, oh, if you're doing a TV show, they're probably doing something really different. Um, and there is one big element that's super different. Um, but other than that, like, it really is just like, no, we're just going to turn it into a, a long yeah. television-like arc instead of a Well, there are, I would, there's a couple arc. aspects that are pretty different. I don't want to give anything away. Uh, for me, I only really noticed the one non... And like, yeah, uh, obviously it's a huge spoiler, so... I'm trying to, like, not give this away, but, like, I want to talk about the things that are different now, which is annoying. But if you haven't watched the movie Snowpiercer or things like, I mean, like, that movie is, like, such a hidden gem for me. Like, I'm honestly surprised people don't talk about it more just because I thought it was so good. I mean, I rewatched it and I do think it is good. Like, because I, I remember talking to you about like it. Like, it's messy. Thinking, like, I really didn't like it and I thought it was really boring. And I rewatched it and oh. I liked it better the, on the rewatch. Um, and I could appreciate it for a lot of, like non-plot character related functions like i think like it's it's visually beautiful i think the sets are really incredible i think the pacing is really good of it um but like a lot of the integral elements that make a film were a little clunky to me like i think the character development was a little clunky i think the plot was a little clunky um but the acting is really good because you've got what you've got chris evans you've got jamie bell you've got tilda swinton you've got ed helms i think in it so like it's it's a really mm-hmm. stacked cast but yeah i'm i'm interested to see in the direction that this goes because there are some differences that i notice that are like relatively big differences comparatively to like how the plot is being driven for me it is a very premise driven show and I, I love premise i love world building type yeah stuff um, and that's what this is. So the idea is that um, it's it's the apocalypse happened seven years ago. And what it was this time is um, 
freezing. The world is frozen over, and it's like a negative 100 something. Day after tomorrow. So the way to survive that they figured out was a a big company made a a train track all around the world, which its only purpose is to have one train that just follows this track annually. And the speed at which it goes is fast enough that it generates enough heat to keep everyone alive from the cold outside, in, uh, inside the train. But presumably, they don't explain it, but presumably other solutions don't work because they don't have this kind of uh, heat. But the whole thing is very in-your-face classist, that the first-class tickets on the train get amazing treatment on the train and will forevermore, presumably, get amazing treatment. And then second and third class are not treated as well, um, just treated as the class. And then, and I don't know if they explain this in the movies, but in the show, they explain this quite clearly, that there's people who jumped on the train at the very last minute, and so they don't have a ticket at all. And they stowed away in the back where all the luggage is kept. And they're given absolutely no rights and no things, and they're basically just at the whims of the, uh, the rest of the train. And that is this sort of class warfare is the premise of the thing. It's it's very blatant. Like this is not a subtle, no, um, it's very subtle thing. But I think the the blancy of it sort of lets the premise, I don't know, flow through in a very like clear way. Mm-hmm. Like you really, you know what the messages are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It get it gets it out of the way. It gets it out of the way very quickly, which makes it really really easy for you to get on board with the no pun intended, but get on board with the world building almost immediately because you know exactly how this happened and you know exactly why each section of people live the way they do so you can just be like okay that's done that's in my mind now show me what this world this new world order looks like show me what um like how they have food on this train and how they create heat on this train and how like like where are the renewable like show me all of those pieces now because everything that would set up to this is out of the way super quickly and I, we, we mentioned this before, but it is by the director. The, the original movie was by the director of Parasite. Yes. Which has, surprise, surprise, very similar themes, much more mature. Bong Joon-ho? I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah. He also so did it, Aksha. Parasite's obviously an all-Korean cast, the, uh, but where Snow Pierce is, as we're saying, like it is all um, American. But you can you can see, especially at the end of that movie, some very clear it's um, not all it's it's not all american there are a couple korean actors in it it's just like your your main your main cast of characters is like popular american actors but there are a couple korean actors in it um but that that's it for me yeah i liked it so far the first two episodes that were on there i love jennifer connelly so me too okay i'm gonna really i'm excited for weekly shows i am too but i get impatient i like the mix of them but i'm impatient I get impatient, but it allows a community to be built. Yeah. Which is I agree. like really nice. I agree. Instead of just at watching everything and then never being able to talk to it. Yeah, I agree with you. I think The Haunting of Hill House was a weekly show as well, and I did end up really liking that um, as a weekly show. And I've been impatiently waiting for the next season. Okay, I'm going to do one more. I'm going to really quickly do the Daniel Rad- Radcliffe movie because um, sure. I don't have a ton to say about it, but I love Daniel Radcliffe so much. And I feel so bad that he will forever be Harry Potter to everybody because I actually think he's a really, really good actor. Like I think he's just like really, really, really skillful actor. Um, but this movie Imperium, it has him, 
It has Tony Collette. Nice. It has love um Tony. I love Tony Collette so much. It's got the guy who this is like the worst description because I don't know his name, but I actually think he's in the Snowpiercer show too. Now that I think about it, um, but the guy who have you ever watched This Is Us? Mm-hmm. He plays the sister's husband. I can't remember the sister's name. Kevin's okay. sister. What's Kate? Yeah, he plays Kate's husband. Um, but he is in the show, and I'm pretty sure he's in Snowpiercer too. Is one of the like trained security guards. Um. Like the TV show Snowpiercer. Um, yeah. I'm pretty sure that's him as well. Mm. But he's in this, and Imperium, Daniel Radcliffe plays um, like an FBI agent, but like he had traditionally done mostly like interrogation work and translation work, and he was like more of like a paper pusher. And Tony Collette recruits him to be an undercover agent and to infiltrate. Um, a neo-Nazi group. So he basically okay. has to like become a skinhead um, because they're certain that this neo-Nazi group is um, going to commit an act of domestic terror. Uh, and this all happens in DC and it's based on, based on true events, quote unquote. But like, it's not perfect. Like there are better movies out there both about undercover FBI agents and neo-Nazis. But it is it, it is really good. Tony Collette's really, really amazing, as always, because she's just the most amazing actor on the planet. But Daniel Radcliffe does a really, really good job of being this sort of, like, awkward, unsure, unconfident, pencil-pusher kind of guy, and then, like, slowly morphing into this, like, really aggressive, really intense really intelligent neo-nazi and then like playing both sides and being the agent and going back to tony collette and reporting everything that's going on it also has sam trammell in it who is from true blood now that i think about it mm. but anyway it's it's not amazing but it was it was an interesting movie it was i always find it really really difficult to watch movies about like neo-nazis it's just like so hard to watch because it's so gross and it feels like so real Mm-hmm. because like they always take place in like any time frame between like the 90s and now so it's like yeah this this really does still happen and it's gross and it's odd and it's intense did you see hunters the, the other oh hunter? yeah that one was in the, that was set in the 60s the one with al pacino and oh, okay what's it so i cause i've only seen the previews for it but like the weird vibe about that is that they're like it almost feels like they're too afraid to be like these are neo-Nazis. No, it's like, no, no, no. They are shipped in real Nazis. Well, no, because this takes place, like, only, like, not even 20 years after World War II ended. Right. So this is about... So very real. Yeah, this is about the Nazis who escaped persecution after the end mm. of the war by allowing themselves to be recruited by the U.S. government as scientists and medical officers and all of that kind of thing which is true that did happen the u.s and the russians recruited um nazi scientists uh after the war because they were the best scientists in the world despite the horrific things that they did so it's it's about that but it's it's a revisionist history thing um so it's basically that again we're talking about hunters not imperium um, but it's, it's basically that happens. And then these neo-Nazi or these Nazis 
in the 60s are regrouping and trying to create the Fourth Reich from within the United States. So now they've been recruited by the government and they're hidden in the government and they have new names and they get to pretend to be Americans and they're starting to regroup to try and throw over the American government and just bring a new wave of Nazism. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what Hunters is about. Um, I'm pretty sure it's got Percy Jackson, the lightning thief kid, from in it as well. <laughs> I'm like 90% sure that's the main kid in it. But anyway, my whole point of this was Imperium was pretty decent, but it wasn't the best neo-Nazi <laughs> movie I've ever seen. So we have a slightly new plan for today's episode. Yes. God, it's 800 degrees. So there. we're going to, you'll know from the title. We're going to watch Come to Daddy. The right? Is that the name? That is the name, yeah. but it's really, it's it makes okay. me laugh every time I have to say it. Yeah. So we're going to watch Elijah that off, off camera, so to speak, um, and then get back to you guys after the movie and tell you what we thought. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my chocolate factory. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. And we're back! Yes. So we just finished Come to Daddy. The title is already gross. Did you need that? The sequel to Freddy Got Fingered. Ew. About daddy issues. Ew. No. Never even saw that movie. I just know it's gross. I think I did see that movie because it came out around Van Wilder, didn't it? Like around that sure. time? I think so. Van Wilder had Ryan Reynolds in it. Hmm. It's one of his earlier movies. Anyway, I think I did see it, but I don't remember it. I was probably like 13 or something. Um, what did you think of the movie? I don't know. I think I need to like ruminate it ruminate on it like more to have like a real opinion it was weird obviously because 90 percent of the movies we watch are weird aesthetically beautiful and like like we were saying this during the movie like it's very stylistically like it's it's different but in a lot of ways it's very stylistically similar to like a lot of the indie movies that we've been watching lately or that like and that I've been watching alone. Like it's it's very stylistically similar to like Villains, which I watched recently, which has Bill Skarsgård in it. Um, it had a lot of similarities to Mandy. Um, it had a lot of similarities to like cinematography wise to Under the Skin, but not plot wise. I mean, Under the Skin didn't have a lot of plot to it, but like Under the Skin had a very like sadness kind of to its vibe. Which I don't, mm-hmm. I think Come to Daddy was trying to do, but it, it didn't really have that to me. Yeah, I, I don't really know what to say about it. I'd say it's not that any particular part of it is so bad, but I'd say overall it just didn't affect me. I, I think agree. it's just like not a good version of these like indie movie. It didn't go far enough in any direction. Yeah. And I just, I feel like I didn't care enough about the protagonist to be really invested in his journey of this like, you know, sort of like suspended maturity, man, child, like late in life coming of age story. Like I didn't care enough about Elijah Wood's character to really like see him through that journey and like his missteps and his like 
emotional immaturity and all the wackiness around him because of that. And I also feel like they didn't delve enough into the actual daddy issues. Like, you see a little bit of it at the end where he's talking about how he, like... I mean, this is spoilers, but how he's talking about how he ran off every guy his mom dated after his dad left and how he never let her get over him. Like, they go into that a little bit, but I feel like the entire story was supposed to be about his journey of coming to terms with, like, that whole piece of his entire existence and, like, his own daddy issues suspending his maturity. But, like, they didn't actually delve into any of that. Yeah. You know, they didn't develop any of those characterizations. They just gave you, like, a very superficial look at, like, what um like, indie movie man-child would look like, and then never actually delved into, like, the personality disorder that he obviously was dealing with. Yeah, I to me, it's most similar to, of movies we've seen recently, to Mandy, in its plot structure. Yeah. Except that Mandy is, has so much psychedelicness, so much excitement, surrealness. Yeah. Um, it just really goes all in on what it's trying to do. Here, the main plot element is very different. In Mandy, it's a guy whose um, wife is is um, killed by a cult. Yeah. But in this, I'm, I'm, we're going to try to keep the plot twists and spoilers down. But in this, it is it centers on Elijah Wood having daddy issues with a his long estranged father, who I guess he knew when he was about three to five is yeah. when he leftish, and. Uh, yeah, and so he goes to see him, and it just, it, yeah, it dives into a Mandy-like story from there, but I, it just isn't exciting. It doesn't no, it doesn't really bring up. I feel like the issues that they're trying to delve into with Elijah Wood's character are so much more on, like, an emotional level. Like, they're a lot less tangible than the issues that Nicolas Cage's character and Mandy is going through. Like, his issues are just, like, his wife was kidnapped and then murdered by a demonic cult and then he's seeking revenge. And that's like, you can show that very easily without having to delve into like the psychology or emotion of the character that much. You don't need a lot of dialogue or character development to be able to like effectively pull that off. Whereas in something like Come to Daddy, where you're trying to show his like stasis in his emotional maturity and then his like, growth journey throughout like trying to meet his father and like reconnect and then all of the crazy shit that happens that kind of gets in the way of that and then him discovering how emotionally immature he is um and how that's affected the people around him it's so much more of an intangible that you need a lot more character development to effectively pull that off and i just don't feel like they they actually put that effort in you know what i mean yeah I, I think I'm with you, too. It's just that I really don't have much to say about this movie. It's unfortunate because I think Elijah Wood, like like a Daniel Radcliffe, has a tendency to do these, like, really weird movies. Like, ever, like Daniel Radcliffe did Harry Potter. Elijah Wood did Lord of the Rings. After they did their big blockbuster movies and they're basically set for life because they have these huge series that they're a part of. They've sort of been doing these like weird indie projects um, and just being like really picky with what they do, which I think is great. Um, And both of them actually, because I 
read an article about this, they both tend to um, help or assist in financing projects that they think are really, really interesting that they want to be a part of, but wouldn't get off the ground necessarily without their assistance. So I think that's really cool. And I think, tr like, typically they both make really interesting, good choices for, like, weird indie movies that they want to be a part of, but I just think this was, like, a misstep. I think there was a lot there that could have been really cool and really interesting and really on trend with your like Mandy's and your Daniel isn't real and like under the skin and Suspiria remake and all of those types of movies. Like it's right in that range. I just don't think it was executed in the best way possible. And I think there was like a lot of lackluster writing as far as the characters go. Like they were very flat. Yeah. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't have an interesting enough vision. To, and doesn't pull off a director and so just it it feels uh, maybe it's just the exact movies we've been watching but it just feels like the most generic version of a yeah. mashup of some of the indie movies we've been watching yeah and i think if they were going to do that like they should have delved farther into that sort of like ambient psychedelic go heavy in the lighting go heavy in the music choices because like they did make interesting musical choices that are like I'm assuming meant to sort of suspend you in time so you don't know exactly when it is taking place. Even though they show a cell phone once, it's sort of supposed to suspend you a little bit mm -hmm. in like what time period you're in. But they didn't go hard enough with that. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't yeah. all about the soundtrack. It wasn't all about the lighting. It wasn't all about the cinematography. You had pieces of those things. But they, it just felt like they were taking like trying to take the best parts of other movies that have done that really, really well and mash it into one movie and just say, like, this is going to be great and everybody's going to love it because it's the best parts of everything else that's come out. And it's like Mandy was so heavy in soundtrack and lighting. Suspiria is obviously huge about soundtrack and lighting. Under the Skin was huge about cinematography. But they just used fragments of that in this. And I don't think they did enough with those pieces that maybe could have compensated for flat characters. Yeah, One thing we did discuss during the movie was this relationship of Elijah Wood looking like a man-child mm -hmm. and uh, his, his really juvenileness. Yeah, and then the, the point of the movie is that he's confronted with situations which are extremely adult, like overly so. Like no one should really be confronted with how intense and insane. So he has to grow up really fast. And, like, there's something very appropriate about that in media right now. Like, that is very much the moment. But um, it's it just doesn't dive into that strongly enough. It doesn't show off his juvenileness well enough, except for the first few scenes. No, it's very superficial. It's very yeah, super It's and... just, like, the haircut and the clothing and stuff like that. But, like, beyond that, it's not... Like I said, the character is so flat... There's no development that really explains that he is childlike or that he is underdeveloped emotionally. It's just like, yeah, he has like a bowl cut and boyish looks and like he wears like boyish fashion and stuff like that. But it's not, there's nothing about the character that's inherently childlike other than like the facial expressions. So that I think was sort of lost yeah, I, I kind of wish I could like pivot to something else interesting to say, but really the movie was just not a great one. It was bland. And, uh, you know, that, that just, that happens sometimes. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, I guess, you know, one of the, if there's 
quote unquote, if there's a lesson here, I think one of the hard things and one of the things we wanted, we've been, you know, doing this movie, watching it for a long time is that we're trying to watch movies that we wouldn't necessarily pick up and be excited about immediately. We're picking movies that are more indie, more, um, we don't know how it's going to go. And, yeah. but it's also just not a guilty pleasure type movie. Right. Mm-hmm. So these movies can only really win us over if they're executed well or have an interesting thing. And of course that doesn't always happen. Hidden gems and whatnot aren't going to always be good. Yeah, absolutely. And so and this, it's unfortunate that we hit a dead right away, but... This movie felt very much like it was trying to be on trend in what cre- like what makes like a cult classic. You know, like Mandy has become a cult classic, Under the Skin has become a cult classic, and it, and it felt like a movie that was just really trying to capitalize on that vibe without providing any of the substance that those other films have provided. You know what I mean? Yep. And that's that's sort of disappointing. For sure. Especially for a, a project with like Elijah Woodnip, because I do think he's he's a very skilled actor and I think he's been in a lot of good things that have a similar vibe. I mean, just chiefly among them like Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, I think is great. I was thinking about that. And it does it, it yeah. does have a similar vibe where he has that sort of man child affectation. Or um sure. Wilfred. Wilfred, I think, is a great example. The TV show Wilfred that he did, um, where like he has like a pseudo imaginary friend where it's this dog that's anthropomorphized and it's just a man in a big dog suit. I don't know if you ever saw Wilfred. No. It's very weird. Uh, but it's it's cool and it's funny and it's like very strange and awkward and it's very ahead of its time because it very much has this kind of vibe that we're talking about. But because it's a show, it delves a lot deeper into that sort of like suspended maturity thing that I think Come to Daddy was trying to do. But I think it did it in a lot more realistic of a way because he's sort of like this boring nine to five guy, but he still has this sort of childlike wonder because he still has his imaginary friend Wilfred. And Wilfred is like very crass, very like sexual, very like aggressive. And he's like sort of all the things that Elijah Wood's character pents up inside um, and hides from. It's like all of those types of negative or really right. intense emotions that an emotionally immature man might not be able to come to terms with. So he bottles them up inside and they manifest as this anthropomorphized dog, Wilfred, who is his imaginary friend. Um, and I think that's very much what Come to Daddy was trying to do in a, in a sort of different light, but it does it significantly more effectively. Yeah. It's also interesting to me because um, what you're saying is that the, the connect the dots between this and Wilfred, and then I think of you know one of my favorite movies, Problem Time, uh, Fight Club, is this relationship of the uh, inf- not he's not an infant or infantilized, but he's a he's not realizing full manly potential in Fight Club, but there weirdly you know even as a kid it's like it's charged with a strange sexual energy. There's all sorts of other things that are in it that change the dynamic with when it comes to exactly on like dad issues i just i think it's just something that i don't quite connect with and you know i think i have it's, i don't i don't think i have a necessarily great or not great relationship with my father i think it's fairly standard sort of distant awkwardness blah 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 and so these ones where it's like the, the estrangement especially is something i can't relate to and i wonder how much that affects my viewing of this movie but i don't know 
See, for me, it's not the estrangement that that is giving me pause. It's just like the lack of anything from that like that character. You know, I'm like, I can tell he's supposed to be an emotionally immature man. And I can tell that they're trying to say it's because he was estranged from his father since he was like five or so. But they don't do anything to create that sort of like cohesion between those two facts. They're just sort of plainly stated and you're supposed to accept them. And then there's supposed to be this sort of like build up throughout the film where he's like becoming more mature and he's supposed to like grow up really rapidly. And then at the end, he comes to terms with his own issues. But I didn't really see any real kind of growth there. It was just like a bunch of mayhem occurs. And then at the end, he's like, yeah, so I basically ruined my mom's life because you were gone and it really fucked me up. And you're just like, oh, okay. So like, that's what the movie was about, I guess. Yeah. And when you think of like what the message there could be, it's not good. No, it's like, not. It's, it's, not, it, it's it, basically like if you don't have a father issue, then you're going to become infantilized and screw your, screw up your mother's life. Like, Well, it's it's not only that. At the end of it, I feel like he didn't really take any responsibility for it. Like he's like he admits fully that like I ran off all of my mom's potential partners because I always hoped you would come back. And like that's kind of taking a responsibility for it. But but then it just feels like he's saying like. Yeah, I did all of these things, but it's all because you left. I'm not really responsible for it because you weren't there and it's your fault. And that's kind of gross because like even if you can relate it back to the fact that your dad abandoned you and like I'm not saying that's not a huge thing. Obviously it is and it would of course screw you up and it would be something you would have to deal with and come to terms with. But at the end of the day, like he does need to take some responsibility for the actions that he took that damaged his own growth and damaged his mother's growth because at some point like you are an adult and you are responsible for yourself you don't really get to put that on somebody else at some point in your life so i think i struggle with that too like it doesn't feel like there's any sense of personal responsibility it's like this is just what i have to do and it's like well that's not great yeah i think i think that's it for me yeah I agree. I agree. I wish they, I, the one thing I wish is that they had done, because there was, there was a little bit of beautiful cinematography in it. I will admit, like, there were some really great shots in there that were just really interesting. Like, when he first looks down the tunnel and it's just, like, black with a little, like, spotlight of light from the flashlight, that's really beautiful. When he leans over the bed frame in his pajamas, like, that's a really good looking shot. The scenery is really beautiful. I wish they had gone further into use of color, lighting, and um, soundtrack. Because I I really think that, like, that could have elevated a movie that was, like, so lackluster. It was, like, Mm -hmm. almost there. All the pieces were there. They just didn't go far enough into any one thing for it to be kind of anything other than just sort of a storyboard. Like, it felt like a first draft. Yeah. We don't really have an outro. So... (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, that's awkward. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that's everything from both of us. Um, So if you're really interested in watching the movie, it is. if you're in Canada, it's available on Crave. It is a Crave original film. Um, So it's made through Bell Media. If you are not in Canada, I have no idea where you can find it. Maybe Hulu. Give it a shot. Yeah, but that's it for the podcast. You can find us on Twitter now. We have a Twitter. Um, it is at fans lab pod. 
And you can also find us individually on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Lydia D. Gillespie. So have fun spelling that. And mine's at Joseph underscore Lewitsky. But you can find us through the through the pod one. Yes, that is true. You can. Yeah. So I think that's it this yeah. week. Um, Thanks for joining us. Please feel free to message us on Twitter and let us know what you think. <laughs>